0: Good morning, church. Today's reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter fifteen, verses twenty-one to forty-seven. And they compelled a passer-by, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah, And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, This man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. There were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when the evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This is the good news, and this is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, as Nick said, this is the word of the Lord. At Bethany Church, we believe that God speaks in his word, and then we open his word. God speaks. He speaks, uh, and to, to, we prize it. We want to privilege it. We want to study it. We want to open it. Uh, and even this weekend, some of our women, I see a picture coming up, went this uh, weekend to a, a training network, Women's Training Network by the Gospel Coalition. In uh, They had a great time, I heard. i was so glad they went, just to, to open the Word, to learn how to study it more, to learn how to teach it more. From Priscilla Shire event last weekend to our women's event this uh, last weekend at the Training Network. We're doing things and valuing things and promoting things that hold forth this Word. So glad you guys, ladies went. heard you guys had a great time. Well, when we jump in today, we come to the, really, the pinnacle, the peak, kind of the, the climax of Mark's Gospel, Artists have called it visual lethargy or visual fatigue. It's what takes place when you've seen something so much you don't really notice it anymore. You've just seen it too much. My kids go out to school in Newburgh and I make that drive uh, uh, at weekday mornings, the drive out, the drop off in the morning. It's a beautiful drive. It's so pretty out by Shampoo State Park and out that way uh, uh, and it's just Amazing sometimes to see, especially when the seasons are changing and spring coming now. And the first year I drove them out there, I noticed it almost every day, that beautiful drive. Look around at the scenery and Mount Hood and and just kind of be in awe of God's creation. I'd look around and see it. And now in our second year, I've noticed I'm becoming familiar with my surroundings. And I'm not seeing them as much. Uh, I've seen it so many times that it's lost its impact on me. I just drive by and blow by Mount Hood now, and I don't even notice it now. I'm becoming fatigued. I've seen it a lot. It's lost its wow effect on me. I've become visually fatigued with it. Well, this morning, as we come to the climax of Mark's gospel and the scene we're going to look at today, I think there can be a fear and maybe a reality that we have become too familiar with the cross familiar with what took place there. We see them in paintings. We see them on, on the top of churches. We see them on, on necklaces on, and on a crucifix. And we see them so much that we can become dulled and desensitized to what we're looking at when we see a cross. Visually fatigued when we look at something, something that really is similar to this picture that's popping up. An electric chair. It's, it's an instrument of death. Death on a cross was one of the most cruel, humiliating, and painful ways to die. It's where we get the word excruciating, actually, from the cross, out of the cross. My hope this morning is to help us see, as we take a look at the work of Jesus, what he did on the cross, that we'll see it with fresh eyes today. Fresh eyes to, to, to wake us from any uh, visual lethargy, visual fatigue, or, or even put it more importantly, to wake our heart fatigue if you have any with looking at the cross. Have you grown too familiar, or bored, indifferent to what Jesus did on the cross? This Sunday, we attempt to look at the heart of love that was displayed in the cross of Christ, and we're going to see the eternal Father turning his face away from the eternal Son with one purpose of redeeming lost and sinful humanity. Remember that idea, substitutionary atonement, substitution. Remember Jesus putting himself in our place, the just for the unjust. We talked about this the last few weeks. So we're going to look today at three stages of Jesus' death today. His crucifixion, his actual death, and then his burial to see the heart of love. So grab your outline. Hopefully you got it there. Hopefully you got your scripture open to Mark 15. As we look at the very first piece of this story, that Jesus was crucified while shamed and mocked to save sinners. The first piece of this story today is actual crucifixion. Remember from last week, Pilate had just brought Jesus out to the people, probably on some portico or some balcony in front of the people. He had brought him out to the people, and not in our Mark text, but in John, he said, Behold the man. And he put Jesus in front of the crowd and said, Behold this man. But it was a strange statement because before them stood a bloodied, a wearied, a flesh-torn, member, his back, individual that would have been unrecognizable to them. Man, he looks more like an animal at this moment. He looks less than a man. And he's taken away from this moment with Pilate to be crucified. So let's look for a few minutes more this morning at the real pain Jesus experienced, physical, psychological pain, relational pain, to behold this man. That's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to behold, behold this man. Let's do what Pilate asked. Let's behold Jesus crucified. Because while the suffering is important, what's even more important is the who. Who was suffering? Suffering is important, but who was suffering is the most important. And that question is going to be answered today, isn't it? By someone in our story. It's going to be answered for us, as, as Nick just read You know, Jesus' physical sufferings, they've always been a window, you could say, a window to see God's heart. But the Gospels don't spend too much time actually talking about uh, or graphically explaining them. Why is that? Well, a Roman audience who would have been reading the Gospel of Mark wouldn't need the details. They wouldn't need the details. They knew what the scourging was what that entailed, as we saw last week, what that would have done to Jesus' body. They knew that. They knew what crucifixion was. They had witnessed many. They didn't need the details. The details are this, though. It was the most degrading, humiliating, and one of the most painful death experiences that Rome would use to not only punish criminals, but to deter others. That's why we put up an electric chair this morning usually the criminal would be forced to carry the crossbeam, the larger crossbeam, which could weigh sometimes up to 100 pounds, on his shoulders, and he would be paraded through the town, usually the longest route possible for the sake of people coming out and seeing. And so Jesus was asked to carry this crossbeam. As Isaac was asked to carry his own wood up the hill for his sacrifice, Now Jesus, hundreds and hundreds of years later, is asked to carry his wood up the hill for his sacrifice. But he must have fallen or been too weak. Something happened there in that moment because this man, Simon of Cyrene of North Africa, possibly even a black man from North Africa, is asked to stand in and and carry the beam for Jesus. And so they took him outside the city gates. As even some of the goats would be sent out with the sins of the people on them, he's sent outside the city gates to a place of the skull, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh as he's there. This would have been a tradition that local women would have come along when somebody was to be uh, executed. It would be a local tradition. The women would come and offer someone a, a narcotic, pain-reducing type of drink, this wine mixed with myrrh, which would have that effect before the execution. But what does Jesus do? He refuses it. He doesn't take it. He doesn't eliminate the pain. He doesn't take the edge off of it. He, does, he refuses and rejects any form of relief in this moment. He would face his trial with absolute mental clarity. Nothing clouding his judgment, nothing clouding his vision. As he was there on that day with the full weight of judgment, bearing the full consequences of our sin with a clear mind. But he would also keep ministering. You know, he, he even spoke from the cross. There's seven different phrases or words that he said from the cross. He would keep ministering with a clear mind. He kept it to the thief next to him. As we know, one of them believed after mocking him. To his mother, who stood at the foot with John, take care of her. And all the people, as he said, Father, forgive them. He kept a clear mind so that he could keep ministering up to the very moment of his death. How much easier would it have been for him? Just give it to me, give me more. Give me more and keep drinking and drinking and drinking to dull his pain and hasten his death. How much easier would that have been? So much easier. But he resists for us, for those who are even standing there around him. There's no post crucifixion opportunity to say, See, Jesus didn't know what he was doing, he was drunk. No opportunity for that either. Well, next, they stripped him of his garments. It's possible, it's possible that Jesus was crucified, naked, absolutely. How humiliating. How humiliating. Not just naked, but arms spread out on this cross. We'll see Psalm 22 pop up a few times today as this was in Jesus' mind and even quotes it but he was crucified, possibly naked. But here's the truth for us. It's in his nakedness that we get our clothes. Do you know that? It's in Jesus' nakedness that we find our clothes. Take a look at what the theologian Calvin said. The evangelists, he says, portray the Son of God as stripped of his clothes that we may know the wealth gained for us by this nakedness. For it shall dress us in God's sight. God willed his Son to be stripped that we should appear freely with the angels and the garments of his righteousness and fullness of all good things. So not literal clothes. But when Jesus is stripped, it's so He can be clothed in this work that he does, clothed in his goodness, clothed in his righteousness. He was naked so we could be seen in God's eyes, in God's sight, as with the perfect outfit on, his righteousness. What would it be like? To stand naked before the piercing eyes of God. Think about that for a minute. What would it be like to stand naked before the piercing eyes of God? You don't have to, Calvin's saying. You don't have to. This is the substitute. This is what we're talking about here. His poverty is our wealth. His nakedness, his death makes it possible for you to be given clothes of righteousness so that you never have to fear standing before a holy God naked. This is the heart of love. This is the gospel right here today. At this moment, as he's there naked, they would have fastened Jesus to the crossbar. Now, as he's there and they've He's refused this this drink. They would have fastened him to the crossbar. You you probably know how. By driving nails through his hands or maybe uh, possibly the base of his thumb, maybe through the wrist to hold more weight because the bones are there. They would have nailed his hands to to the crossbar. And his crossbar at that moment would have been raised up by soldiers coming around and lifting it up and connected to a post that was already in the ground. And at this moment, Jesus would have been hanging there with his feet just dangling, just dangling from this crossbar. And then he placed one foot on top of the other And at that moment would have driven probably one nail through both feet to connect the feet to the cross. And there Jesus was placed to die. Usually with crucifixion it was by exhaustion or asphyxiation because the weight of a body when hanging down like this, it makes it very hard to breathe. You can't get any air in your lungs. And so what do you do? You push up on your feet so you can get a breath, causing even more excruciating pain, on and on and on and on and on a cycle that just keeps going on and on and on. So many times it was by exhaustion itself that they died. And as he did this, this pushing up and this catching breath and hanging there, they they mocked him, the Scripture says. And they shamed him as the sign said over his head, King of the Jews. They yelled insults and and shook their heads and, and sarcastically taunted him. You think you can destroy the temple and rebuild it and and you can't even come down from the cross? If you can't do one, you can't do the other, Jesus. You can save others, but you can't save yourself in this moment. Aha! We've got them. But it's in the very taunting that the all-powerful sovereign God is accomplishing the very purpose of salvation. Even in the taunting... They're the secondary causes that are enacting the first cause, which is God and His divine decree that Jesus would die. Psalm 76 says, God makes the very wrath of man to praise Him. That's what's happening here. They think they're destroying the helpless, the pitiful, the weak, the the, the misguided, the blasphemer, as they've called Him. Do you remember? When ironically, they're bringing about the very saving, they're taunting him for being too weak to accomplish. It's incredible. If you come down from the cross, the scribes say, then we'll believe in you, but you're too weak. His weakness is the very reason they've always wanted nothing to do with him. And they say it. If you come down, we believe in you, but ah, you can't. Just come on down. We'll believe in you then. Imagine the taunting. I mean, come on, Messiah, that's all you got for me? This is all you got for us? All the while, they're looking at, in the face of the greatest act of love that's ever taken place. The most powerful rescue, the most obedient uh, act of strength, actually, that's ever been witnessed. Not weakness. They weren't looking at weakness. They were looking at absolute, bold, obedient strength in this moment. I love how Keller puts it. He says, it takes far more strength to be voluntarily weak for someone else. That's what he's doing. It took enormous love and, yes, strength for the Son of God to submit to a condition of weakness voluntarily for our sake. They cannot see the real power of God taking place right in front of them. They can't see it. What do we see in this mockery? What do we see? A few things three little things I want us to think about in this mockery of Jesus as he hangs there. The first is this. We realize that to stand by Jesus, which most of them are gone now, they haven't, means you are going to have to stand at some time in life probably against popular opinion. Look at what's going on with Jesus. And you're going to have to, we're going to have to go against the tide sometime. Look at the moment of his death. We, We have a lot of challenges coming ahead of us as a church. Not just us, church, big church, all church. Culturally, all kinds of different things coming our way. We absolutely do, so many. I, I truly believe that. We've seen the crowds at the end of Mark go from praising to, to cursing Jesus as we talked to Hosanna to crucify him. It's so easy just to go along to get along, isn't it? And that's a temptation, isn't it? Here in our family In our relationships and our friends, it's so easy to go along to get along. And on one level, they were right. It was, we'll see in a minute, God the Father had forsaken Jesus here. So some of their taunting was accurate. But we clearly see that to to stand by Jesus means that sometime in our life, we're going to have to go against the tide. The second one is this that we see in the mocking we also see a really clear picture of the natural state of the human heart. It's really hard (laughs) because we're in that that big clump of humanity too. The one you and I are born with. It's to be at enmity, the word scripture uses, with God. Hostility to God. Romans 8, 7 says, the natural mind is hostile to God. It means you're born hostile to God. And we're seeing that in this mocking of God, of Jesus. The human heart, it means, is not neutral from birth. Let me say that again. The human heart is not neutral from birth. Apart from a work of the grace by His Spirit, which makes you His friend, people are not neutral to God. That's not how we're born. We're seeing that here. Now, that doesn't mean that every human being walks around cursing God. That's not what that means. But it does mean, so I think at the very least, that humanity hates anything that threatens our autonomous control of our life. We're hostile to it, even if it is God. Like God with absolutes? Well, I'll take the ones I like, but the ones I don't, that's not my God. Or my God wouldn't do that, say that, require that, allow that. That's not my God. That might be the God of the Bible, but that's not, that's not my God. We see it showing up here, the natural state of the human heart. We see it in the hostility that shows up in the offense of the gospel, even when we share that we're sinners that need a savior. And that we're saved actually by grace alone, not by doing something great and mighty for God. We're saved by his great and mighty act that we're looking at today. And the offense that is to people. Here's the third one. Maybe it's in your own heart. You find yourself growing cold and you've become sort of numb to the cross today, lacking in affection toward God. Here's what Jonathan Edwards said about that. The natural heart does not love to have much to do with God. The natural tendency of the heart is to fly from God and keep a distance from him. They see no manner of beauty or loveliness nor taste any sweetness in God. And because they can't see his beauty, they're not pleased, he's omnipotent and can do whatever he wants. And so we run from God. Hostility can show up in our own life when God sometimes might cross our will or not answer a prayer that we're thinking should be answered a certain way. Well, the hardest one for us as humans, we know it is when suffering comes into our life. And when we find ourselves being angry with God, when that does, even as followers of Christ, a little hostility can raise up in our heart, can it? Towards God in our anger. Humans are, this moment of mockery shows us, natural enemies and hostile to God. We're not neutral. There's no neutrality until he makes you a friend. Or, there's only neut- or there is no neutrality until he makes you into a friend of his. Then you become a friend, a follower, a disciple. How do we know? It took something as serious as the death of his son to bring it about. That's how we know. I mean, if it was just a little issue. It wouldn't have taken such a grand sacrifice. We know that humanity has a big problem because it took the death of his own son to fix the problem. That's how we know. And that's where we head next. Jesus died like no other. Forsaken, yet affirmed. And loved. It took something so serious to save us, to to destroy that hostility between God and man, to change our hearts, to make us friends. It took something so radical and drastic. Let's take a look at it now. What happens is Jesus now hangs on the cross approaching his death. The crucifixion began around 9 a.m., and it's now approaching noon. He's been there a few hours when the sun would have been at its highest point, high noon, top above the sky, when verse 33 says this of chapter 15. The sixth hour, when it had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. A supernatural, miraculous event took place. It was a cosmic sign in the sky. Not not a solar eclipse. It was the wrong time of year but a cosmic, miraculous sign of mourning. As darkness covers the land. Probably just locally there, geographically. Imagine the change in mood. As the sun is high overhead, this sort of happened here to us, and instantly it's blotted out there as the silence of night, the darkness of night come, and Jesus writhes there in pain. Imagine that. Amos said, On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon. And darkness and darken the earth in broad daylight. This happened. They recorded as happening. No one refutes it in history. And we have a precedence too, don't we? Do you remember the book of Exodus in the plagues? What was the ninth plague before the Passover lamb? Do you remember? Darkness. Darkness was the ninth plague. Darkness before the first Passover lamb was slain. Darkness came over the earth, and now the final Passover lamb would be slain, and darkness of judgment descends. God's judgment in this darkness is being poured out on Jesus as our sin substitute. There's that word again. And this brings us to the center of what's happening at the cross. It brings us to the very heart of what's happening at the cross in this moment. It's in these moments that Jesus is becoming sin for us. That's what's happening. Right there in real time as it begins to get, uh, come dark, Jesus is becoming sin for us. Wave after wave of the world, sin is being dumped upon the sinless lamb. That's what we're seeing. First Peter said it really clear. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's it, the cross. So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. Our lust, our anger, our abuse... Our divorces, our murder, our jealousy, our greed, our lies, our pride, they're being poured onto Jesus in that darkness. Given to him as if he'd done them himself. And God would need, actually need to turn away. In him is light, Scripture says, and there's no darkness at all. He cannot positively approve, fellowship, look on sin with positivity. He is perfect holiness. He just can't do it, or he ceases being God. He can't. He cannot fellowship with sin, and so at the ninth hour, Jesus experiences the finality of that forsakenness as he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? question carries with it a gravity and a mystery that stretches our minds to comprehend. It just does. It stretches the imagination. Now this was not the physical suffering in this moment. This was the spiritual suffering of knowing something the son has never known before. He's never known this before separation from his Father from whom, from, with whom he'd had eternal fellowship. Think about this for a moment. I've ever heard one pastor describe it this way. If you lose, let's say an acquaintance comes to you, you've known for a few months, but you kind of enjoy their company, and they get offended at you, upset at you, and, and kind of just break off that relationship with you, walk away. I mean, it stings a little, doesn't it? But you've only known him for a couple months. You say, oh, okay, you know. Maybe I'll try again, but you know it, it's not the end of the world for you. It stings a little bit. Now imagine it's a coworker you've worked with for three or four years. You've got a good relationship, and you find out you know HR comes knocking on your door. You never want that. Um, but you find out you know this this relationship that something's happened. It's broken. It can't be repaired, and, and you have lost this fr- relationship with a maybe a coworker that you've known for four or five years. That hurts even more, doesn't it? Well, now imagine it's lifelong friend. Your best friend, you've known each other for 20 years. You've gone through so much together. You've got such a deeply woven, intimate relationship, and that relationship gets destroyed by something and it's broken forever. How's that, how much is that going to hurt? S- dramatically more than the acquaintance. Okay, so we come to the Trinity now. There's never been a more perfect, loving relationship that's ever gone on any longer amount of time than forever. It's been forever. And it's perfectly loving. And in that moment, that relationship is broken. Now that gives us a little sense of the pain Jesus might have felt if we equate it to a lifelong friend, a spouse, a, a child, somebody that we've had this long, if we lose that relationship. This was the eternal father and son losing. And even so, in that moment, he still cries out, what? My God, my God. It's the truest example of faith for us ever, ever, The greatest example of faith ever known was that phrase. Do you know why? Our culture tells us, if you don't feel it, if you don't feel it, it isn't authentic. And if you feel it, it's true. And you better follow it to be authentic. Does that make sense? Our culture tells us, if you don't feel it, it's not real. So, you know, don't do it. It's not authentic. Jesus in this moment never felt further from God. He never felt further from God. He didn't feel God. He did not see God. He did not experience and feel God was his God in this moment. He'd been forsaken, but he believed God in that moment, even though he didn't feel it. He believed God at his word. He took him at his word even though he didn't feel like it. He said, my God, my God. So in your life too then, in my life too, if you don't, when you don't feel it, And that happens. You might be that way this morning. came into church like, I'm not feeling this. When you can't see God, when prayers aren't going your way, you hold on to his promises as Jesus did. You hold on to his word. And you say, my God, my God, where are you in this? I still believe you're my God, but I don't feel it. You behold the one who is truly, actually forsaken for you and yet held on for you. My God, my God. I I mean, how can we not trust him in our darkest feeling when we see his actions that he did for us? Your your feeling, my feeling of being actually, uh, of being forsaken is actually ever only apparent. It just looks like it. It just feels like it. You never actually are if you're a follower of Christ. It feels like it many days, doesn't it? Like, where are you in this, God? I feel forsaken. But it's only ever apparent, never actual. He was actually forsaken so you and I could get through the next apparent forsaking. That's what's happening of today, of tomorrow, of the next day, because we know they'll keep coming, don't they? And the hour comes for his death as he's holding on, my God, my God. And the darkness all of a sudden, though, begins to lift for Jesus. Most victims of uh, uh, being crucified, crucifixion, they die by suffocating, by loss of breath or pass out from exhaustion, and they're never heard from again. Jesus died a death like no other. Look at verse 37 with me. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. what did that cry sound like? What did the people hear standing around the cross that day? It was probably this as John records. It is what? It is finished. That's probably the cry Mark's referring to. And he breathes out his last breath. He breathed it out. He cried out when no other victim of crucifixion could probably ever do this. He cries out, it is finished. And he breathes out his last breath. The payment had been completed. It was finished. It was done. Sin had been paid for. So that through faith, we could get his righteousness. We, we quote this verse a lot, but it's that important. Second Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, he made him to be sin. That's what's ending right now. The judgment is lifting. Who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took that rejection for me. Actual rejection. I can take this apparent one for you, Jesus. Because it's only ever apparent. It's never actual. Are you trusting Jesus for this today? Are you trusting him for righteousness? Not your own goodness, but his. His clothing. His pure white robe. However you want to speak metaphorically about it his, his billion-dollar bank account, however we want to put it into our terms today, for you? Are you trusting him for that? I pray you are, or that you do today, or that you do today. Because unless you do, your rejection isn't apparent. It is actual. But why else would we need something so drastic? There's a cross for the Son of God. And God gives us this beautiful picture, even in the death, that the forsaking was over when he says, ah, oh, it's finished. You ever finished a task you never thought you'd get through? Yeah, we have. It's done. You know, the paper's done. The, 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 the house has been painted. Whatever it is, you know, the big projects we have. It's finished. It's done. It was finished and he affirms his son's death in a couple other ways. A Jewish way and a Gentile way, we want to look at quick, as the temple curtain tore from top to bottom. I love this book. It's a children's book, and they got some great images from it. I thought I'd bring it today. The Garden, the Curtain, and the Cross. It's a great little children's book. I think we had it as a resource before, so you might recognize them. The curtain was the dividing wall in the temple, the Jewish temple. And that curtain separated people from the place where God manifested his presence most clearly. It was called the Holy of Holies. It was the heart of the sacrificial system. It was the, uh, the, you know, like the central nervous system of that. It was the pulsing life of the sacrificial system, this place behind this curtain where God manifested himself and only the high priest could go in once a year because there was a separation. In fact, separation had come between God and man ever since the garden, do you remember? He sends them out. He puts warrior angels there in front to keep them out for their own good, actually. From his holy presence, and now too in the temple there was this separation. And the curtain, too, interestingly enough, had warrior angels on it, just like the garden. And it protected sinful people from God's holy presence. But now it tears. And when it tore, God was saying, You don't need sacrifices anymore, Jesus is the final sacrifice. And the way to God is open for everyone. And I think it was actually less about God allowing us in. I think it was him actually breaking out. I think it was him coming out to humanity. Breaking out that curtain, not just so we can come in. He says, no, I came to earth. I'm breaking out of this temple. I'm coming to rescue you. That's what I think we see happening in this this tearing, especially top to bottom. So no one could say, oh, they just went in there and kind of, it tears. The keep out sign is gone forevermore. As Mark tells his Jewish audience. And he takes us to the destination of this whole gospel. Kirk, we you do me a favor? We read Mark 1 1 to us nice and loud. Sorry to put you on the spot. Yeah. Kirk's like, what? We actually stand up and read it nice and loud so everybody can hear it. the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Thank you. Short and sweet beginning of the gospel, Jesus Christ, Son of God. Along comes a centurion, a Greek now, not a Jew, and he's the only person in Mark to speak these appropriate words about Jesus. Look at verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. This Roman centurion who would have overseen many crucifixions, it wasn't the miracles, it wasn't the teaching, it was the way Jesus died different that made him affirm his deity. It was in the way he died. Whether it was the breathing is last or what he said, it's finished. This Roman centurion affirms Jesus' is the deity. And I want you, I want so badly to affirm that as well. Can you affirm with the centurion today, he is the son of God. He was then, he still is today. He will be forevermore. Can you affirm that today with the centurion? I love that after his death, you know what, it's so gracious of God. After his death, we only get to hear from the positive people. Before his death, we see the the mockery. After his death, we get the centurion. We get the women who are talked about here. We get Joseph of Arimathea, and John. gospel records that Nicodemus as well comes for the body. And there they were, the Marys, the women, and Salome. The women were there. The women stayed close. And it's their love for Jesus by sticking close, going against the tide, standing there while he was mocked that establishes them as the eyewitnesses. They get to see it. They get to see it. God blesses and rewards them as they need eyewitnesses for his resurrection. Let's look at his burial to close. Jesus was buried as corpse with courage by witnesses. As corpse with courage by witnesses. There's no mistake here. Jesus was buried because Jesus is really dead. The human body of Jesus truly expired. The soul, I believe, was in the presence of God the Father until the resurrection. He really died. And Mark makes it really clear when Joseph went to ask for the body, verse 44, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Mark couldn't make it more clear. He's really dead. Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin that had tried and convicted Jesus just to A couple days, or that day, or Thursday night into Friday. But Luke tells us he didn't agree with their decision. This Joseph. His courage and love for Jesus caused him to step out in courage and risk for Jesus. And he has no knowledge of the coming resurrection. Think about that. He's got no knowledge of the coming resurrection unless he's really prophetic and putting some scriptures together in ways his disciples didn't even. Jesus was dead. He was a corpse, but still we see this marvelous, bold, risk-taking action as they take him down. And he crumbles off the cross. And they care for his body because bodies are good and they're from God. And they'll be resurrected. And they laid him in a wealthy man's tomb on a stone shelf. And, And some women watch. They're there again. They watch where he's laid. Mary and Mary, why are they mentioned here again? He they, they, they just mentioned them a couple of verses ago. They're mentioned again. Well, for one, they love Jesus. They didn't care who knew. But they're here on this dark Friday because Sunday is coming. That's why they're mentioned again. Because in a couple short days, a few hours, this same Jesus will be resurrected from the dead. And so they're mentioned again because Sunday is coming. This Jesus for you and I, he was crucified, he died, and he was buried. But the story doesn't end there, does it? That's why they're mentioned, because we'll see them again next Sunday. Would you pray with me? Lord, what a heavy picture in the cross as we come to the work that you accomplished for us in the death of this one who was and is truly the Son of God. Lord, let no one leave here today indifferent to the work of uh, Christ on the cross. Whether it's a first-time wrestling, great. Whether it's a first-time acceptance for what he's done for someone, great. Whether it's a renewal or rekindling of passion for Jesus as he Was rejected for our sake. Great. Do your work, we ask God. Christ's name we pray. Amen.